You're listening to Mental Work. I'm your host, Bronwyn, an early career psychologist based in Australia. And this is the podcast taking a closer look at the challenges faced by early career mental health professionals so they don't have to go it alone. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Mental Work. I'm really excited today because I am sharing the mic with Dr. Catherine Hart, a clinical psychologist and a group practice owner. And we're going to be talking to you today about some topics that early career mental health professionals should know or need to know about working in group private practice. Catherine, could you please tell the listeners who you are? Sure. Hi, Bronwyn. Thanks for having me on. Um, I am a clinical psychologist, as you've already mentioned, and a business mentor and coach. I trained in the UK, um, went through various different iterations of psychology. I thought I was going to be a forensic psychologist, then a neuropsychologist, and finally landed on clinical psychology. So I've got a few different um, hats that I've worn over the years. And then over here in Australia, I have currently three private practices and um, really, really passionate about supporting psychologists to have a balance of great places to work and really great team culture, but also really helping to improve accessibility to uh, mental health services and making sure that that's still affordable and accessible and trying to destigmatize that wherever possible. So I'm really interested to talk to you about this today. Thank you. Yeah, no worries. My pleasure. And what you just said, like, speaks to my heart. And I'm like, oh, good. She's taking care of the psychs. And then she's also concerned about mental health and access to it. Sounds good. Good combination. With today, I think we wanted to start off with salary expectations. And the reason why we wanted to do this was because sometimes when early career mental health professionals enter the field, maybe not even sometimes, all of the time, we've got this idea like, what am I actually going to earn? And what is reasonable for me to expect to earn? And so I wondered like if you had observed this in your private practices. Absolutely. And I think it's a really important topic to just get out on the table and have a discussion around because I think not not even just early career psychologists, I think a lot of psychologists across the board don't maybe have a good grasp on on these concepts. And so, you know, this idea about are people entitled or not? Well, mm. I, I mean, I think you and I might disagree on this a little bit, but I think it's, it's potentially an unhelpful way of, of labelling psychologists. I think there's definitely a mismatch between what people are expecting and what businesses can offer people. But I think this discussion is really valuable because because the, the hope for me anyway is that it opens up this discussion for early career psychologists about what do you want your career to look like? Um, what do you want from a private practice? And hopefully helping them to understand how they can get to that over time with a, within a business, but also helping them to understand the constraints that different businesses will face and then how do you negotiate on that really and, and meet somewhere in the middle? But I, I absolutely have seen, I, th- I think there's a supply and demand issue at the moment, which is exacerbating this issue, that there's there's huge demand currently and, and COVID, of course, has ex- exacerbated that. And, that. and it's really hard to find staff. Staff are in high demand. Psychologists are in high demand. And so I think that that is exacerbating people's understanding about what they're worth. I think that there's a few attitudes out there that, well, I, I can charge whatever I want, really, and and the clients will pay it, which, you know, I've heard of provisional psychs charging $180 a session, which, of course, is fully out of pocket for a client, and qualified staff 280 
you know, a session. And that's, for, for me, that's, that's it sits very uncomfortably with me. I don't think that's the answer to this issue. You know, if you want a higher salary, where's that money coming from? Sure, it's coming from the client, right? So that the client's got to wear that cost. And that's really, I don't think that's fair. There needs to be a realisation that if you are charging this amount, say 180 for a session, that that's coming from a client who I guess has is seeking mental health support and perhaps they don't have the financial means to actually pay for that or making it more difficult for them to access services. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at an average income earner, can they pay, can they afford $180, let's say, every fortnight? I don't think I, I couldn't. I don't think so. <laughs> I, I wouldn't I wouldn't pay it. Yeah. I, there's, there are some some clinicians who view themselves on par with, you know, specialist medical services. And they'll say, well, I've got X amount of experience or training, not necessarily early career psychologists, but it drives this expectation that, hey, you can build up to this salary because you're a specialist medical provider. And, and my argument is actually psychology is not an elective service. It's, it's primary care and people should be able to access sessions weekly, fortnightly, affordably. And so, yes, people have a salary expectation, but that also has to sit in line with well, what's affordable for the clients. I guess like, so maybe I'm realizing that there's some tensions here because on the one hand, it's like, we need to have accessibility of mental health services. But on the other hand, we also need to have a salary that supports psychologists, mental health professionals, our daily living. Like we also need to support ourselves. And we know that if somebody is not in good financial health, then they're more stressed. Is that correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the opposite end of the continuum is when um, clinicians are bulk billing, you know, and seeing and seeing lots of clients and bulk billing. And again, that's not sustainable either. That leads to burnout that, you know, that tends to bring in certain devaluation of the services and that's not sustainable either. So that there absolutely is a, is a bit of a tension and it needs to be um, understood that there has to be a, there's a bit of a sweet spot in the middle here. Where you can give you can give good salaries, but um, early career psychologists in particular have to appreciate that their salary comes from somewhere. We can't just give them huge salaries. Yeah, maybe we can talk about that because I think a lot of this idea that maybe early career psychologists are expecting too much, I think it might come from a place of just not knowing. Yeah, well, I, I think there's a lot of people out there, a lot of psychologists who are subcontracting. And so I think maybe they misunderstand sometimes or don't think through fully what they are actually earning because they'll just say, well, let's say I charge $200 in a session. I take 50% of that, $100 an hour. I see seven clients a day and I do that over five days a week, 52 weeks of the year. And then they just come out with a number. But that number is completely skewed. It's unrealistic. It's not actually what they're doing. In fact, in my experience, when you take out, when you look at somebody who's subcontracting and what they're earning, they're actually earning less than somebody who's employed. In fact, some of them are actually being underpaid when you, when you look at how much work they're doing and you look at their contracts. But I think some people just come to a, a number of, say, let's say $150,000 a year because they're doing that maths, which is almost, you know, it's not, it's not correct maths in the first place. Perfect situation maths. It's assuming that you're, you won't have sickness throughout the year. You're going to work 52 weeks a year. Um, you're going to be there every day. You're never going to have any cancellation. It's kind of best case scenario. Totally, totally. Yeah, so it's unrealistic. And so when you're a subcontractor, actually you're wearing a lot of the costs that if you were employed in private practice, the, the practice would be wearing. So, for example, the private practice would be paying for your insurances and probably most in most private practices. 
and would be doing your marketing and finding your clients and your sick leave and your superannuation and just the day-to-day costs of running a business, your administrator, your the stationery and the internet and the phone and everything else that's that's really, if you're subcontracting, you're, you really should be covering most of those costs yourself. Shouldn't be covering. You should if you if you were subcontracting properly, and this is this is the other issue that we can talk about. But you should really be having that. Those costs are your costs as a subcontractor. Okay, so I think we're kind of getting to the point where it's like salary expectations. It's not as simple as us pulling a number out of the air. It's actually dependent on what kind of employee or contractor like what kind of role you have in the group practice and then the I guess the practice itself um, what what location it's in what kind of practice it's in and so maybe we can talk about subcontracting a bit could you actually just tell us what subcontracting is because some of the listeners like myself including because I've never done subcontracting could you just tell us what it is or what it should be we'll say should be uh, well, if, if people are interested in this, the ATO have a really um, the, the ATO have a really useful um, sort of questionnaire. Just a couple of questions that you can go to, and, and perhaps we can put the link in as well for people. So you can do a really quick assessment of whether you are a subcontractor or whether you are an employee. In my experience of this, there are very very few psychologists who can actually be contracted legally. As a subcontractor, it's really hard to do because if you look at the way that a private practice runs, you you are you have a team atmosphere. You are um, you're not subcontracting your work to somebody else. You can't just say, "Oh, I'm not coming in today. I'm going to get Bronwyn to do my client see my clients for me." That doesn't happen. You 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 do a set number of hours. You earn a certain amount of money. You're you're there regularly. You know, there's all these questions on the ATO that most people, even if they have a contract saying that they're a contractor, they're actually not. And so it it raises a whole load of issues. What are the consequences of that? Like just thinking about the early career professional or at any stage, like what are the consequences for them if they think they're in a contracting arrangement, but they're actually not? Look, I mean, they can they can talk to Fair Work and they can talk to the ATO and, and they will give them very clear guidance on that. It has really big implications though. I mean, Fair Work have been through a number of different um, organisations, if you like. I can't think of the right word. You know, they've been through the construction industry They've been through, you know, all the Uber drivers, cleaning services. They've been through the main industries that have had the worst problem with this, but they're coming to healthcare. They will get to psychology soon and, and they will start to say, hey, look, you know what? This contract isn't correct. And unfortunately, the business owners will, will have to wear that cost. They will say, you know what? You should have been paying your staff superannuation. You should have been paying their sick leave and you have to back pay that. So it's massive. Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, when I hear that, I'm like, oh crap, from like the yes. business perspective. And then I'm like, well, oh crap, from a from the contractor's perspective, because that means they're missing out on super and other perhaps entitlements that they should be receiving. 
Absolutely. And you know what really gets my goat? The majority of these workers are women and they're already underrepresented in terms of their superannuation contributions and the time out of the workforce. So they're being penalised, but it's a massive, it's a massive issue. Yeah. I mean, like just to contextualise it for listeners as well, I think I'm not quite sure of this entirely, but I'm pretty sure like women in kind of the 55 to 65 year old group is like the largest growing group of homelessness in Australia right now. And that is usually due to actually not having enough super. So it's a huge problem, just not now, but later down the track. It really is. It really is. And, and the way that that feeds into to what we're talking about is that many group practices are set up with subcontractors, but they're, they're doing it in a way that when you walk into a, a group practice as a client, for example, you don't, it seems like they're all, they're all employed because of the way that they're all being treated. And so often they will be given their clients. They won't have to go out and find them. They'll usually have access to practice software and um, a way of taking payments, a, a way of having all of their bookings, um, their cancellations rebooked, uh, supervision, peer supervision, supervision, all these ongoing things that they'll have that make it look like they're, uh, uh, they're employed. So they're not actually having to pay the costs of those things. So if you were a true contractor, you'd be having to pay for all of that. So you'd have to have your own, say, let's just say FPOS machine or a way of taking payments, your own practice management software, way of keeping client notes, your own supervision. Um, you couldn't really discuss client cases with your colleagues because you'd have to get confidentiality agreements signed every time because you're your own ABN and your own business and they're their own ABN business. So you're talking between businesses. So it, it comes to this idea of what costs should a contract truly be having to pay um, that maybe aren't set up. It's not set up properly for a lot of places at the moment. This sounds really complicated. Like <laughs> as you're, as you're speaking, I'm like, I remember with my first job and I was reading through the contract and it actually ended quite poorly. And I actually did end up getting a community lawyer to look after my contract, which was really difficult in itself, by the way, because I discovered that nobody wants to look at contracts. Mm -hmm. They're like, no, I don't do contract law. I asked fair work as well. And they were really helpful. That was really good, but it was super complicated to know contracts. So as you're talking, I'm just like, wow, how would actually an early career psych stop themselves from being exploited if they were offered a sham contract? And, you know, what I've worked for a, a community health organisation that had mega bucks spent on the lawyers and getting their contracts correct, their contracts were still not correct. They still weren't legal um, in, in this regard because they don't understand it. And because this is the culture within the psychology industry, a lot of allied health actually, GPs are the same. But because it's not widely understood, they're just doing what's always been done. And, and psychologists do, do what they've always done. So it, it's pretty hard to stand up against. If you're, a, if you're an early career psychologist coming into, let's say, a community health organisation, they're giving you a contract and you say, well, hold on a minute. Why are my client notes, why do my client notes not belong to me? Or why, why are you telling me that I've got to do an induction and do, my, do this training through your organisation if I'm a contractor? They just don't, they don't get it. They don't understand it yet fully. And as a, as a new career psychologist, how are you supposed to know all that? That's really hard. Well, yeah, we don't get taught it. And that's why we're having this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like I had the same thing when I walked into my first job out of uni and they were doing similar things. 
and I had no idea that this wasn't okay and what the norm was because you don't have any sense of that. Like we learn norms either through looking through our colleagues and if everybody's like, no, this is okay. And then if your supervisor's like, no, this is okay, you assume it's okay. And it's only when you get out of that situation that you realize that it wasn't okay. Totally. And are you going to get pass up a job opportunity just because the contract seems a bit iffy? No, You're because not. <laughs> no. And I think this comes back to kind of internalized attitudes. Maybe I guess like, you know, one in five psychologists are male. So that means that 80% are female. And so this might come back to internalized attitudes because immediately my thought is like, no, I don't want to be difficult. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and if there's such a high, high demand of psychologists, well, they've probably got five other people lined up for the job as well. So they're going to go with somebody who just signs the contract. Yeah, absolutely. I guess like practically speaking, Catherine, what should early career psychs look out for in their contract? Like, is there any way they can protect themselves? Just trying to provide a bit of hope here. Well, I think, I think they have to, I think the ATO stuff and fair work stuff is a really good starting place. I think really understand what it would look like if you were a contractor. Think about it if you are, say, a plumber and somebody calls you up and says, oh, can you, can you come fix these pipes or something? Like, what, what does a contractor really look like? How do they run their business? How do they behave? And, and just apply it to psychology. So I think just understand what really a, a contractor means. It means really that you find your own clients, you do your own marketing, you have your, the clients pay you, you might pay a service fee to that organization, for example, for the internet and the administration or whatnot, but really get a good understanding of what that looks like. Because that also feeds into, if you're an early career psychologist, you might not want to be out on your own as a contractor. You might actually want to be employed and, and have the support and the supervision and the, the guidance from other people in the group practice, which really as a contractor, you, you, don't re- you shouldn't really be getting. Yeah, it's interesting because I think a lot of, there's a lot of dissatisfaction, just kind of like, this is what I've taken away from the whispers I've seen mainly on Facebook, but it's like, as an employee, people are like, why am I not earning as much as I expect? And this comes back to salary expectations. And then they're like, as contractors, I'll become a contractor, perhaps not realizing that that actually equates to a loss of that supervision and kind of that support. Well, it it does equate to a loss of support, but it also can equate to a loss of income anyway. You you find that there's a lot of contractors who, when you actually work out the amount of time that they're spending at their workplace, they're actually earning less than you would if you were employed. And some of them are actually being underpaid. So again, this comes back to really figuring out how many hours are you actually working for for this salary? Um, and it's it's it, on paper, you might say, well, I'm a contractor, I'm getting, you know, 70% of X amount of money, it looks great. But if you extrapolate that out for what you're actually doing for that, it's it's usually not great. Yeah, maybe tell me if I'm right here, we've got educate yourself using the ATO. Is it like a calculator? Um, it, it is. Um, it is. A, it's just a couple of questions. So yeah, we can, we can put the link up. Yeah. Educate yourself using the ATO website where they ask you a few questions. Also look at fair work and have a good understanding of what a contractor is. And I guess apply that to psychology, see whether it differs. But another thing is also to work out, well, how many hours are you actually working? And when that translates into like an hourly rate, how much are you actually earning? And let's say you're earning like below minimum wage, you're earning like 17 bucks an hour. That's not good. No, and, and that's what I'm seeing in a lot of these organizations, a lot of private practices, they're, they're actually liable for, for these things as well. 
because for example, they're saying, oh, well, you're running, you've got to run our group program. It's from six till 7.30. Well, they're not getting paid overtime. So if you look at all that, you look at, hey, you know, I'm not, I'm not getting sick leave. I'm not getting annual leave. I'm not getting carer's leave. I'm not getting paid for the hours I sit at my desk writing reports, no shows, all the rest of it. Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of people who are aren't earning anywhere near what they think they are. When they're honest about it, when they really sit down and honestly look at what they're doing for that amount of money, it's usually not as not as glossy as they thought it was. Yeah, I think that's kind of a lack of education as well. It's something that I've realized in my own practice. I do solo private practice. And when I was employed in a government-based service, I was earning about 32 bucks an hour. And then when I came to private practice, I've had a look at the breakdown of my expenses and I charge 180. And I know that's still, it's still lower than my peers. It's on the low end. But from about that, I think I earn about maybe $85 an hour after all my expenses and I lease my own room. And so when you look at that, I'm like, yeah, I'm taking about like, you know, 50% of that. And so I think maybe, maybe contractors don't understand that as well. It took me a few months to be like, oh crap, I'm actually like not earning that much. And then I immediately stopped bulk billing. Cause I was like, oh, I'd be earning like 18 and a half thousand mm-hmm. for the year. Mm-hmm. So it's a big realization when you actually understand your numbers. Absolutely. And, um, you know, not everybody wants to go through and budget and understand and, and really look at all those ins and outs, but, um, yeah, it's, it's often more complicated than people think. Very eye-opening. Hmm, for sure. Yeah. So I'm wondering, Catherine, like, um, just some kind of practical things for the listeners with, um, salary expectations. So are we not going to be able to produce a number that's like, you should be expecting this? Like what can, what can they ask to help with getting an accurate salary expectation when they are approaching private practices? Well, yeah, I mean, different organizations are of course going to have different costs. It's, it's not unrealistic for early career sites. So I think look at the award rate and it's going to give you a bit of an idea. We know, we know that as a psychologist in private practice, you're not really going to go above level two on the award rate unless you're then managing staff and managing budgets. So you can, you can be looking at probably around $32, $35 an hour. I mean, this is all approximate. It's going to depend very much on each individual practice and their costs. Um, but you can, you can be going into practice sort of looking at the, I don't know, $80,000 $80, kind of mark in, in most places, I would think. Of course, if the costs of the private practice are higher, then your, your salary is going to be lower. But you're going to, you know, let's just take admin for one example. If your admin costs are a lot higher, you're going to have a lower salary potentially, but there's going to be everything done for you. Whereas if there's no administration, your salary may be higher but you're going to have to do all of that for yourself. Yeah. So it's always a it's always a trade-off between the cost of the business, what you're billing, what you're bringing into the business and what the business can pay you. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess like for early career sites, we need to ask ourselves, am I willing to do what's needed to bring in that money to have this salary? Because it might be that you have to see six clients a day, five days a week to be able to bring in enough to kind of earn that salary. Like, would you say this is right? I mean, Exactly the bottom line. That's exactly it. If you want a salary of $150,000, you can achieve that. But you'll be doing seven clients a day, billing them probably upwards of you know $200 an hour, and you will be busted. You'll be, ha- you'll be under the pump all the time. Like you can't take a day off sick. You've got to work for it. But sure, if you want to do that, you can do that. 
I don't think that's sustainable for a clinician or a business, but yeah, that's how you get to your salary. So if you want that kind of salary, you've got to work for it. There's no two ways around it. Because that's how we earn our income. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. And I guess it's the lifestyle that you want as well. So for me last year, I actually did burn out. I've seen too many clients and now I've dropped down clients and I'm much better, definitely not burnt out, but it's like, I was willing to be like, nah, I'm okay with not earning that much because I can actually have a sustainable life. Definitely. Definitely. We, we, we've had, we had somebody recently who looked at a a job with us and and they were asking for a, a really, really high salary. And It came down to a conversation about, look, the only way we can really get to this salary is by putting the prices up. Yeah. And in the end, we decided, no, we don't want to do that. We don't want to, we we really need this psychologist and they'd be great fit for the team, but we can't go against our values of creating accessible services. So, you know, that's, that's the position that a lot of private practices are in, I think, where if somebody wants a salary of $150,000, that probably the easiest way to get to that is to put prices up. Is it sustainable, really? Is it sustainable for the clinician doing that amount of work? And is it sustainable for the business, um, you know, giving that amount out in salaries? Yeah. And for me, it's like, I feel like if the early career psych is disappointed, it's like, I think the disappointment comes from maybe reality, almost not keeping up with cost of living and also the Medicare rebate as well. So a lot of what we do is Medicare rebated services. Is that same with your clinic? Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So we know that the Medicare rebate hasn't kept up with inflation. It's quite low actually. And we also base our services and affordability on that. So it's like if that had increased, then maybe we'd be able to charge more and then we'd have more of an income. So that's kind of where I've come to. I'm like, it's disappointing maybe that I'm not anymore, but it also comes to like increased advocacy in our profession because we actually need people to value our services more. We need more government investment and we need to be able to do this and that so we can actually charge more, but still make services accessible to people. Is that kind of where you've come to or am I off the? I, th- I think it's, I think it's valid. Um, I, I do believe though that for example, within, within our company, we, we've got a really good balance. We can give people really good salaries, actually. We can employ them. So they've got that, they've got all the benefits of being employed. We give them a really great quality of life. So I think it's doable. Mm. I think it's really, it's really attainable, but I think it's about psychologists understanding where that balance lies. Yeah. Okay. So it's coming back to before when it's like, like we could do this, but you'd have to be seeing seven clients a day, five days a week, 52 weeks a year. And we could do this, but it'd also go against our values. So maybe we're not going to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm. But, you know, we, we, can get to a, we can get to a pretty good point with salaries where people are earning actually pretty well. Um, just as, a, as an early career psychologist, I think psychologists have to understand that they're not going to be on a salary of $150,000 because really if you're looking at the award rate, that's kind of what you'd expect if you were – 10 years qualified, managing budgets, looking after staff. So, you know, we can only pay you in line with the award rate Um, and and we can only pay you really a percentage of what what you're billing, what you're bringing into the clinic. That makes a lot of sense. Catherine, I think we're kind of coming to the end then. So we've really touched on two main things, which is salary expectations and group private practice. And we've also talked about this idea of sham contracting. And I just wondered whether you had any final takeaways for listeners about these two topics. Oh, goodness. I think the takeaway about the the, um, salaries, the bottom line of that is that to achieve a salary of whatever it is, you need to be billing a certain amount. 
So if you want a really super duper high salary, you're going to be busted. You're going to need to do a lot of work for it or bill ex- extortionately. Um, there is a real sweet point whereby you can have a good salary, a really good salary, and still have a really great quality of life. Because we know we we've, we achieve that for our staff. So we know that that's doable. So I think if, if you're going into a new organisation, be willing to talk about money, be willing to talk about amount of clinical sessions that you'd be expected to do. Try and get an understanding of, of those costs and the percentages. Because we, we know that, you know, your salary is going to be a chunk of the, of the um, clinic costs. So just have some awareness of what those what those percentages might be and and where that might sit. Um, So just do a bit of homework, um, but know that you can, you can get a good quality of lives, a good balance and have a good salary. I feel reassured. Um, (laughs) And, and what about the sham contracting? What do takeaways for that? (laughs) It's a really tricky, it's a really tricky situation. Again, I think do your homework, have a look at the ATO, have a look at fair work. Change is coming. So it's going to happen sooner or later. And there's going to be a lot of organizations that are caught, caught out with this. So get, get to understand the law, get to understand what your, what your entitlements are. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess this kind of like knowledge is power, really. Knowledge is power. And I'm, Just wondering, Catherine, with finding out more about you, if listeners want to find out more about your practice or anything else about you, if the business side, where can they find you? Yeah, sure. So our private practices are Socorus Psychology. So we are www.socorus.com.au. And people are more than welcome to have a look at me on LinkedIn if they want to link in regarding business consultancy or just chat about some of these issues. They're really interesting. Yeah. Thank you so much, Catherine. I've learned a lot myself. I do feel reassured in the salary expectations and I think I feel more frightened in the sham contracting. So that's probably a good thing because then I can learn more and then reduce that frightening feeling. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we don't want to frighten people really with it, but I think people do need to understand it so that they can make these adjustments now and make sure that they're not caught out with, with liabilities down the track. Absolutely. I think it's good to be aware of it because like I said, when I went into it, it's just, you're just kind of blinded and you're like, well, okay, everybody else is accepting it. This is the norm and you don't realize it. And so it's really good to be aware. So hopefully we have made some listeners aware and they might be looking at themselves in their own situation and be like, crap, I'm in a really bad situation. Maybe I need to examine that and leave. Or maybe, yeah, ask for some advice. And if that's the case for you, listener, do that. Yeah, and, and come get a job with me. <laughs> yeah, go get a job with Catherine. She sounds nice. Okay. Thank you so much, Catherine. I really appreciate it. And thanks, listener, for listening. And catch you later. Thanks for listening to Mental Work, the podcast for early career mental health professionals. If you're loving the show and don't want to miss an episode, press subscribe on your podcast listening app. And if you enjoyed this episode or any of our previous ones, leave us a rating and review on iTunes and Spotify. What topics would you enjoy hearing us talk about on the show? We'd love to hear from you. Email us your suggestions at mentalworkpodcast at gmail.com. Have a good one and see you next time.